Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you, and there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a traditional Bible, but you'd like to use one, just raise your hand and one of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. You can also take your smart device and you can open up the YouVersion app or it's also called the Bible app. And we've already uploaded all the notes and all the scriptures. And we'll put the scriptures and all the stuff on the screens behind me just to try to make it as easy for you as possible. If you're watching us online at one of our other sites or one of our services at the Brown County Correctional Facility, I love you guys and I am so glad that you guys are a part of our family. This is one of those great series, particularly for our friends who are visiting the correctional facility. And so we're going to continue this series that we've been in for the past six weeks. We're at week seven. We're just finally getting into chapter two. We're probably going to continue in this series into the new year. And it's all about identity. And so far, we started by talking about a question that every believer needs to ask themselves. And it is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? It's probably the most important question that we as believers can ask ourselves because we were born in Adam. And so because of that, we inherit both his sin nature and the consequences that come along with that nature, including an eternal afterlife separated from God. And so, so because of that, we need to be reborn in Christ. But once we're reborn in Christ, it changes our identity. And so we've been talking about what those changes are. We've been talking about what that new identity is, who we are in Christ. And so far, we've talked about the fact that in Christ, I am a saint. That's probably the one that was the most difficult for people to kind of wrap their minds around, particularly if you come from a liturgical background to say, oh my gosh. And so we talked about the process of two different kinds of becoming a saint. We talked about the uh, liturgical edition, which is quite robust. And then we also talked about the biblical version, which is one thing, in Christ. In Christ, I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint. And it's important that we stop identifying ourselves as sinners. Do we commit sins? Absolutely, we commit sins. But just because we do that doesn't mean we identify as a sinner because your behavior will always come out of how you identify. Secondly, we said in Christ, I am blessed. I am no longer cursed. And that's important because so many of us are living our lives underneath these curses. We're living our lives under sin or underneath shame. We're living our lives underneath this identity of generational curses. And you're an addict because your parents were addicts. You're an alcoholic because your dad was an alcoholic. You're violent because your dad was violent. And all of these things that culture and society wants us to believe are are inherited, we need to realize that in Christ, I am no longer cursed. I am blessed. Third, in Christ, I am appreciated. And doesn't it just feel so good 
to, to be appreciated, for somebody to look at you and acknowledge the things that you've done for them or that you're doing for them. And that just makes you want to do more. Like when somebody shows you appreciation, it makes you want to do more stuff for them. So uh, last week, Pastor Allen talked about in Christ, I am restored. Uh, and so today I want to continue the conversation with this thought. In Christ, I am saved. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your saving grace, for your mercy that is new every morning, that, that you endure with us, God. The things that you put up with, the things that you <laughs> tolerate, the things that you walk through with us are just, at least from my perspective, uh, they're pretty mind-boggling. So God, today, thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience, for your kindness. Thank you that in you, I am saved, saved from sin, saved from shame, saved from myself. God, I pray today that as we leave this place, uh, you would dissect our hearts and you would eradicate whatever needs to be eradicated and that you would add whatever needs to be added. Help us be more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, America loves a good rescue story, don't we? Where, where someone's in an inescapable situation and can't rescue themselves, but suddenly a hero comes along and saves the day. Uh, but wouldn't you agree that, that when we watch these stories or we hear these stories, for some reason we subconsciously identify with the hero? Uh, we, we want to be the one who saves the day. We, we want to believe if we found ourselves in a dangerous situation, we'd react with great bravery and heroics. We want to believe that we'd run into the burning building or, or that we'd pull the person from the wreckage of the car crash, that, that we'd climb the tree to rescue the cat, which I would argue that person isn't the hero in the story. That person is the villain. Leave the cat in the tree. There's a reason why dogs don't get trapped in trees, because they're awesome. Anybody who knows me knows that I, I'm not, oh my gosh, I'm not a cat person. Yet somehow that person is always the hero. And we've heard, we've heard the rescue stories, stories of great heroics, and we have encapsulated ourselves in this heroic nature. But I would like to propose to you today, what if rather than subconsciously identifying as the hero in those stories, you identified as the victim, as the person who needs to be saved. When I was a kid, uh, I wasn't much of a swimmer. I grew up on the Detroit River. And anybody who's ever been to Detroit, you know that that river ain't clean. That you don't want to be in that river because if you swim in that river, you very well might bump into Jimmy Hoffa. He's probably in that river. There are chemicals and catfish that are 400 pounds. There are rats that come out of that water that are the size of small dogs. You don't want to swim in a Detroit River. Plus, most of my friends growing up didn't know how to swim. We were not swimming people. We didn't grow up in a neighborhood that nobody had a pool, wasn't a community pool. We weren't swimmers. Except, except there was one little spot inside of an old retired factory, and, and there was this little cistern, if you would, and it's round, and we would go, and, and we would dive inside the cistern head first, and then we would compete and see who could hold their breath the longest, and just dive in. You'd be down there 30 seconds. You'd come up. You'd have to go take a shower so that you could get the ooze off of you, and uh, we, ha ah, it was the greatest thing. And then uh, one day, my friend, he jumped in the cistern, 
And he held his breath 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. We were like, is he, what, is he a Navy SEAL? Like, this is, ins- how is, this is ridiculous. How? And in about two minutes, one of my other friends was like, maybe we should check on him. And somebody else jumped in the cistern and he was upside down and he had hit the head, his head on the bottom of the cistern and broke his neck. And he wasn't coming up because he, he was a paraplegic for the rest of his life. We, we didn't really want to swim after that anymore. We, we weren't swimmers where I grew up. Then I, then I married uh, Pastor Sonny and her parents, they own a ranch that's half in Montana, half in Wyoming, and it's in the foothills of the Black Hills of South Dakota. And it's beautiful. And one summer after I graduated from college, in between graduating and getting a job, her dad hired me to come work on the ranch, which was awesome because I had never been on a ranch. I had never, I had never seen stuff like that much land and the mountains and the sun would sit there. This is so dope. It, except they had cows on there and I was afraid of the cows because to me, a cow is nothing but it's a brown Rottweiler. Like a cat, it's huge. Like it's a thousand pound thing that to me was going to bite me the minute that I got up and the they make fun of me and all the guys. If you've ever seen the movie Son-in-Law with Pauly Shore the, and the main character is a guy named Crawl, that's what the hired men called me. They called me Crawl all summer because I just was in my own element. And uh, one afternoon, it was a lot, like a hot day. We would get up really early before the sun came up. So my father-in-law decided that he'd bring all the hired men and the family, and we would go to this lake that was on their, on their ranch. And we were going to uh, grill out and go out on rowboats, and we were going to go swimming. And so my brother-in-law, he went out on his, on his rowboat, and he was fishing off the rowboat. And he, and he lost one of his oars and he was alone in the boat. So he, he couldn't like row, he couldn't row himself in. He was just a kid. And so I thought, crawl to the rescue. Like I can't, I may not could brand a cow, but I could rescue my brother-in-law. And, and, so, and so I jumped out of the boat that I was in for some reason to swim, to go rescue my brother-in-law. But it, it, was, it was the 90s. And I don't mean the temperature, I mean the decade. And so I had on these jeans that if you're a child of the 90s, you remember they're called Jinko jeans. Jinko's with the world's biggest pockets. And, they, and it was, you know, the baggier that I had them cinched up with a belt. They'd probably be skinny jeans on me today. But back then I had them cinched up and I had on my Jinko jeans and, and my work boots. And I just, you know, like the hero I was, dove in the water. And... Uh, my Jinkos got so heavy. Like they got like the pockets, the ginormous pockets filled with water. And, and, uh, it, sag is dope until, until sag is a drag. And then the, the pants like started like pulling me under the water like they were an evil mermaid. And they just, and, and I, I couldn't move my legs anymore. And so I was just trying to, tread water with just my hands. And everybody was looking at me and I was going up and down like a bobber on a five-year-old's fishing pole. And my head would go down and I'd come up and I'd yell, help! And I'd go down and I'd go, help! And go down and come, but everybody was laughing at me because they thought I was, you know, because I'm a, I'm a joke guy. And in 25 years of marriage, I have heard Sonny cuss two times. 
That was one of them. When she cussed at her dad and told him, I wasn't playing, like, get out. You better save my husband right now. And so he got in his own boat and he, he rowed out there and he realized something that every lifeguard has discovered. He, he put his oar in the water and had me grab the oar and he pulled me into his boat with his oar because he understood if a person doesn't want to be rescued, they're dangerous. And they will unknowingly or unintentionally pull down anyone or anything in their proximity in an effort to save themselves. And yet, for whatever reason, spiritually, we feel like we have this necessity to rescue ourselves. But the Bible is one gigantic rescue story. It is one big story of salvation. And when we get to this book of Ephesians, the great apostle Paul, he talks about two approaches that people have always taken towards salvation. That people have always and will always try to be saved either by grace or saved by works. And sadly, more people try to be saved by works than try to be saved by grace. And being saved by works is wrapped up in this idea of identifying ourselves as the hero in the story. And so we try to save ourselves. We have this idea if we do enough good, if we behave enough, if we shape up enough, if we change this one thing, if we stop doing this or start doing that, we'll be saved. And if you grew up in a liturgical culture, you completely understand what I'm talking about. But every world religion other than Christianity lives and breathes by this idea. Uh, for example, in, in Buddhism, ceasing desire is the thing that saves you. In, in Confucianism, education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, and living a moral life is the thing that saves you. In Hinduism, detaching yourself and separating yourself from ego and, and living in unity with the divine spirit or energy is the thing that saves you. In Islam, accruing more good needs than bad needs saves you. <laughs> Anybody who knows themselves knows that that is impossible. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance, prayer, and working hard to obey the law is the thing that saves you. And do you hear that? And you go, wait a minute. That last one sounds a lot like Christianity. Right. It does sound a lot like what you've been told about Christianity, which is why it's so important that we grab hold of what Paul is actually saying here in the book of Ephesians, because that mentality still makes us the hero in the story. The problem is, it's not the act of prayer or devotion that saves you. It's the object of prayer or devotion that saves you. But some of us have been taught, if I, if I just pray a prayer, if I just give up all my stuff, if I just change my thoughts, if I just follow the rules, I'll be saved. But that's faulty thinking. We aren't the hero in this story. We are the victim. We're in an inescapable situation and we are incapable of saving ourselves. When I was in college, I, I met a guy who, who looked at my life and after careful analysis determined I needed to get saved. Now, in full disclosure, I had just tried to buy weed off of him. That may have affected his view of me. But nevertheless, he looked at me and he said, bro, you don't need weed. You need Jesus. You need to get saved. 
The problem was I didn't know what that meant nor how to do it. And so I went and found a nickel bag of weed and in my mind, I got saved. I got smoked out. But his response, it planted something in me that gnawed at me for the next six weeks. You need to get saved. Hmm. Saved from what? From myself? From sobriety? From college? From exams? From you, you weirdo? You need to get saved. Saved. It's a central and critical term inside of Christianity. Are you saved? I mean, is she saved? When did you get saved? How did you get saved? Hey, what were you like before you got saved? It's one of those Christianese words that we use on other people, even though we don't think about whether or not they understand. Like I, I grew up without much of a, a spiritual heritage, which was simultaneously good and bad. Good because I didn't have any presuppositions, bad because I was ignorant. Some of you, on the other hand, you have a deep spiritual heritage, which can also be simultaneously good and bad. Good because you have a working knowledge of who God is. Bad because for a lot of you, that knowledge is flawed when it comes to salvation. And so because of that, you're living in a works Mentality. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to propose to you a second option. You could be either saved by works or you can be saved, as Paul says, in Christ. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace. Now, to be clear, Christianity is also a religion of works. But unlike all the other religions, it's not our works, it's Christ's work. In fact, the very name Jesus means God saves. Every work Jesus came to do on earth was for one purpose, to save you. But it still begs the question, saved from what? So in Ephesians chapter 2, in the first few verses... Paul actually gives us six things that we're saved from. Here's the first. Number one, in Christ, we are saved from death. Verse one starts, and you were dead. Spiritual death is the result of sin and the first and foremost penalty for sin. It's what we've earned. The book of Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. What we've earned, what we deserve, what we should have coming to us is death. We're like a cell phone or like a laptop. If you unplug it, it still has juice, but it immediately begins the process of dying. And as much as we think we are, we are not independent. We are fully dependent upon the source of power, which is Jesus. And so you may be physically alive, but apart from Jesus, you are spiritually dead. But gratefully, in Christ, we're saved from death. Here's a second. In Christ, we're saved from trespasses and sin. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And I read that and I go, trespasses. Hmm, that's, that's an interesting analogy, but what's it mean? Uh, here's what trespass means. It means being somewhere you shouldn't be. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, it means that God drew a line or, or he created a boundary and you stepped over that line or over that boundary. And the Bible is full 
of boundary lines. And when we're in trespasses, that means we're in a place we shouldn't be doing something we shouldn't be doing. And it's not just the obvious things that we think of either. I I had a friend uh, who was obese. And when I say obese, he was like five foot six, like 450 pounds. And on the regular, he would hit up the drive-thru on his way home from work. And and he would would eat the meal in his car and throw the bag out the window so his wife wouldn't see it because he ate it on his way home to eat dinner. It was a boundary for him. The reason that we knew that it was a boundary is because if it wasn't, he wouldn't feel the need to get rid of the evidence. What are the things in your life that are boundaries for you that you don't consider boundaries, but you know that you don't want other people to know that you do those things? If you wouldn't want me to check the history on your cell phone, you are stepping over a boundary. If you don't want me to see the images that you're looking at at two o'clock in the morning, you are stepping, you are trespassing. Do you have boundaries in your life? I hope so, because you should. And we certainly have boundaries for others, don't we? We have things that we, we can say that they can't, that, that they can't do, but we can. For example, I can tell my wife she's hot, but you can't. I can discipline my kids, but unless you have a relationship with them, you can't. And if you did that, I would look at you and I'd say, hey, bro, you crossed the line. That's a trespass. So it begs the question, what's sin? We just saw that it is the source of death, but I get this question all the time. Is it a sin to blank, generally followed by something that they want to do? And, and so let me oversimplify it before I deepen it. Sin is anything Jesus wouldn't do. Sin is something you wouldn't do if Jesus was right next to you. And our kids, we talk about that to our kids all the time. Hey, would you do that if Jesus was in the room? If Jesus was right next to you, would you say that? Would you watch that? Would you be on that site? Would you post that? Would you reply to that? Would you respond to that? Would you, would you, if Jesus was right next to you, would you look at that girl at your job? And if you looked at her, would you look at her as long as you do? Would you crank your neck like you do? Would you act like like a bowling ball. And some of you, when you do that and then somebody sees you, you try to act like you wasn't looking. You do that? Have you ever done that? That's a sin. If you do this and somebody sees you and you crank your neck back, that's the Holy Spirit telling you that's a sin. You ever tell your kids, don't do anything I wouldn't do? Now, there are countless specific sins throughout the scriptures. But all sin falls into two categories. You have sins of commission and you have sins of omission. Sins of commission describe the things we did that we shouldn't have done. Sins of omission are the things we should have done that we didn't do. The book of James says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him, that's a sin. In Christ, we're saved from both trespasses and sin. Third, in Christ, we're saved from worldly or unholy living. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course 
of this world, the course of this world. That's talking about rebellion against God. And this scripture is juxtaposing the kingdom of God and worldliness. The kingdom of God is the way it's supposed to be. Worldliness is the act of rebellion against the way it's supposed to be. Worldliness seems normal because that's what the majority of people are doing. But morality is not determined by the majority. Life's like a raging river and it sweeps everything in its path downstream. And those who come to Christ, we're in for a long, hard, tiring swim against the current. Outside Jesus, life is easy. It's easier outside Jesus to commit adultery than to be faithfully married. Outside Jesus, it's easier to give up on your kids than it is to fight for them. It's easier to live in perversion than it is to live in purity. It's easier to live in sin than it is to live in Christ. But in Christ, we are saved from worldly or unholy living. Fourth, in Christ, we're saved from Satan and demons. Huh. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The son, love, love this, the sons of disobedience. God has his people and Satan has his people. God uses people and Satan uses people. There are people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and there are people who are empowered by demonic spirits. Now here at Life Church, we believe in a literal Satan and demons. We believe that Satan was an angel created by God as a minister and messenger, but he became proud in his heart. He rebelled against God and now is at work in the world. And just as God blesses his people with eternal blessings, Satan blesses his people with temporary blessings by giving them what they want, which is power or fame or acclaim in exchange for what he wants, which is their eternal soul. And that was really prevalent in Ephesus, the hub of supernatural and paranormal activity, the hotbed of sorcery. But our culture is no different. Like there's been a huge uptick in the supernatural and occultism in our day. I, I, am, I, am, I am mortified. Such an old man word. I am mortified. It sounds like, like I should have a... I am mortified. Now I feel like I lost the effect of the word. I am so bothered at Halloween. And the things that we celebrate, not the things we tolerate. I wish you would have me go into a haunted house. I'll kick this pulpit off this stage. Have me go down some trail. Somebody's going to jump out and scare me in a mask. The devil is a liar. I'll stab somebody right now. You, don't, you know where I can't this... I'm, I'm, I'm scared enough in life. I don't need to have somebody, I'm not trying to pay somebody to make me scared. Now we're trying to have Halloween all year long and got some, got some demonic shows on TV. Turn on Apple TV or turn on some Netflix and got some dude in fangs and some pointy ears and blood on his face. Man, I wish you would turn that on in my house. And some of y'all are turning stuff on in your house and it's so demonic and you act like it's fine. Man, that ain't nothing to play with. There's such an uptick in the supernatural and occultism in our day. And it's not just Satanism, it's shrouded. It's not just guys running around in black robes, stealing cats to sacrifice them in the woods. And it's in the music we listen to. Rappers putting blood in the soles of some shoes and trying to sell them and talk about the 666 shoe. Man, I love some Jordans. I ain't trying to wear 
trying to wear those. It's in the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the games that we play and let our kids play. It's rappers and singers, actors and politicians who are tied up in secret societies spreading silently subversive messages. But y'all, Satan is real and he is slick and he has one objective. Abby shared the scripture. His objective is to kill you. The thief only comes to steal, to kill and destroy. But gratefully in Christ, we're saved from Satan and demons. Fifth, in Christ, we're saved from a sinful nature. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are all born with a sinful nature. The book of Psalms says we were born in sin, shapened in iniquity. If you don't believe that, just watch a baby. The minute that baby starts talking, their words are, no, mine, stop. Kids learn the word shut up so quick too. And the minute that they can start making choices, they start hitting and scratching and biting. You ever get a call from the daycare? It's about, it's about, hey, you got to get, get over here get Bobby, man. He's killing every kid. He's, he's biting people and scratching people. And you're like, I don't know what happened. It's, he's fine at home. Like, he's never been anybody at our house. We start blaming other people's kids or stuff. Oh, it must be Bobby's kid. It's, I knew it. I said, I told you, don't send him to that daycare because Jim's kids go there. And Jim lets them say and do whatever they want to say and do. And they start, they, like, they, listen, it's not the Jim's fault. It's your fault. Your kids are bad. By nature, they are bad. And that is the nature that we need to want to have to exchange. We need to trade our sinful nature for his holy nature. And the book of Romans says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable, and perfect in Christ. We are saved from a sinful nature. Sixth, in Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God. Says that spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remember when I was young, I, I had a teacher who told me that there are three things that you don't talk about race, religion, and politics. And then I went to seminary and some professor try to teach us that there is a similar axiom inside of the church, inside of Christianity. But we are, we are discouraged from talking about hell or the wrath of God. That it is easier to talk about the love of God. And, and we regularly quote the scripture, God is love. Which, yes, obviously God is love. But you need to be careful when you take one attribute of God and make it into God. For example, God is sovereign. But if God is only sovereign, then everything that happens is his will, which means that he is the author of sin, which the Bible says he's not. Or God is forgiving. Yes, God is forgiving. But if God is only forgiving, that means everyone is forgiven and nobody is going to spend eternity separated from him, that nobody is going to go to hell. But I have bad news for you. There are people who are going to hell and it's not God's fault. He didn't send them there. They made the conscious decision through their rebellion, through their sin, through their shame to make the journey themselves. 
But all the attributes of God work in concert, equally, simultaneously, continuously, and together. So the Bible does say that God is love. But the attribute the Bible speaks of the most is that God is holy. And when it says that God is holy, that means that something that is not holy cannot live in concert with something that is holy. Something that is filthy cannot live in concert with something that is clean. And so when you come into God's presence, your unholiness is overwhelmed by his holiness. Your filth is overwhelmed by his cleanliness. It is God... If God is holy, then to be in his presence makes our unholiness flee. And so the Bible speaks of salvation and damnation. It speaks of kindness of God and the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible talks about the wrath of God over 600 times. Why? Because it's hard to appreciate your Savior if you don't know what you're being saved from. And so God tells us the consequences of his wrath, so we'll turn from our sin to our Savior. And so Paul's saying this, we are saved from death to life, from an identity of a sinner to the identity of a saint, from worldly living to holy living, from Satan and demons to the Holy Spirit, from our old nature to a new nature, from children of wrath to children of God. He's saying, in Christ, I am saved. How? By grace. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins with which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, mm, you could live your life upon those two words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace, that's unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it and you can't earn it. It's not by good works, it's by God works. You're saved by grace. Why? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. For you are his workmanship. One version says you are his masterpiece. And you were created in Christ Jesus for, wait for it, for good works. And you go, wait a minute. Just spent the last 26 minutes saying no works, no works, no works, no works. Now works? Yeah. But it's all about perspective all about priorities. It's all a matter of order. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. When we view our works as the pathway to salvation, those works become the object of our worship. But our works are simply a result of his works. He works in you, on you, and through you, so you'll work with him, for him, and through him. It's not just feeding the poor or, or rescuing the oppressed. It is those things. But anything and everything we do in Christ, for Christ, and like Christ is a sacred work. Like changing a baby or cooking dinner, listening to your spouse after a long day, fixing a flat tire, stapling papers in a cubicle, 
selling used cars. There's nothing more powerful in the world than a Jesus person who understands the grace of God and applies that grace to every facet of their lives. And in doing so, through those good works, we show Jesus to our spouses, to our kids, to our friends, family, co-workers, and even to our enemies so that as they see Christ in you and you in Christ, they'll realize they aren't the hero in their story either. That they are just the victim, that they are in an inescapable situation, incapable of saving themselves. But like you, they can surrender and say, in Christ, I am saved. Would you close your eyes all across this place? I am saved. It is the centerpiece of Christianity. The centerpiece of a relationship with the Lord is being saved, being rescued, of realizing that you've tried all of the stuff that you have the power to do and none of that stuff worked. That you have treaded water with your Jinko jeans down around your ankles for long enough and you realize that somebody is extending an oar and if you grow that oar, you will be rescued. So today we want to help you with that process, help you get saved. The Bible says you have to do two things to be saved. It says you have to confess and you have to profess. You have to confess that you're a sinner and you have to profess that Jesus can change that. And so today I want to give you the opportunity to do both of those things. And here's how we're going to do it. In just a moment, I'm going to ask for people to do two things. First, is with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask for people in this place to do two things. Raise your hand and make eye contact with me. That's going to be your way of confessing. Once you've made eye contact with me in a minute, you can put your hand down. Secondly, I'm going to ask for everyone in this place to pray a prayer after me. If you pray this prayer and you mean it in your heart, the Bible says you are saved. So if you're in here and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I'd like to have one before I leave this place. Would you raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now? Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone in here to say these words. Say, Jesus... I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, the Bible says you are saved. And so we're so excited for you. That is the greatest decision that you ever made in your life. But it doesn't make your life perfect or stress-free. In fact, for a period of time, it's going to be more stressful. Because prior to that prayer... The enemy didn't have anything to think about about you. Now suddenly you're a threat. You're a danger. And so he's going to throw all of his resources at you. And so we want the opportunity to help you. And so if you would let us connect with you, just take the card that Pastor Shelby talked about earlier that's in the seat back in front of you or under your seat if you're in the front row. Just fill out the bottom part with whatever you're comfortable with. Check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus. Tear it off. Put it in the black buckets when they come around or you can take it out to the Welcome Center. We just want the opportunity to connect with you, or you can scan the QR code. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes one more time before we receive the Lord's tithes and your offering. I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I'm saved, I'm a Jesus guy, or I'm a Jesus girl. Um, I think I've had the wrong perspective about works. If that's you, I want the chance to pray for you. If you've been trying to save yourself, would you just raise your hand in this place today and let me pray for you? Yeah, so many people. God, for so many people in this place, I pray blessings on them that you would give them hope, that 
that you'd give them that peace that surpasses all understanding, letting know that you are with them. So today, God, I pray that they would put themselves firmly in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.